All right, well, good morning. Hey, let's take our Bibles and turn back to John chapter 1. Our text for this morning is verses 14 through 18. And our subject for this morning, as we'll look at this text, is the incarnation of Jesus. It's an enriching uh, passage of Scripture, and it is the completion of what is known as the prologue to this gospel. So verses 1 through 18 is considered the prologue, and so we're going to finish that up today. Verses 14 through 18 will be our text. Well, I remember when we learned that Kathy was pregnant for the first time, and so this would have been like 33 years ago. We were so excited. We told all of our friends and family, and then we began to start thinking about names for our new baby. It was about the four-month mark uh, in Kathy's pregnancy that we went to the doctor for a sonogram to see how the baby was doing, and I asked the doctor if he could tell what the gender of the baby was, and he said yes. So Kathy immediately speaks up. She says, I don't want to know. I don't want to know. I just want to be surprised. And I told the doctor, well, I want to know. So you can tell me, and I won't tell her. And then Kathy thought about it a little bit more, and she said, well, that's not fair. And then we agreed that he would tell us both. Well, when we learned that our new baby was going to be a a little boy, we began to really focus on about a half a dozen names before finally choosing the name Matthew, which means a gift from Yahweh, a gift from God. But choosing a name's tough, isn't it? Most of you... uh, have been there. It's not easy, right? You want to pick a name that none of your friends and family members have. You want to pick a name that will not have your kid being made fun of his whole life, which is exactly what's going to happen to this poor little kid. I read an article the other day that this little boy was named Sandwich. Sandwich. Really? What? Of all the thousands and thousands of names that you could pick for your little boy and you pick the name Sandwich, uh, that kid is going to be eaten up, if you get the pun there, at school. What is wrong with these people? Sandwich. Hey, Sandwich. You want a sandwich for lunch? Oh, my. Well... As we consider today the physical incarnational birth of the Son of God, we realize that the Lord took all the guesswork out of it for Mary and Joseph. God had already selected the name for their baby boy and sent an angel to tell them that he should call his name Emmanuel. This, as you know, was the fulfillment of a prophecy that was given over 700 years before by the prophet Isaiah, who wrote Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, The Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will conceive and bear a son and shall be called Emmanuel. And then as you know, in Matthew 1.23, we have the perfect fulfillment of that prophecy. And we learn there that the meaning of the name Emmanuel is God with us. And so, yes, the angel told Mary and Joseph that the child that she would bear would be God himself coming down from heaven to live among men. And as we'll see this morning, when the Scriptures speak of God dwelling among men, it literally means He pitched His tent among us. That is, that He came to live right where man lives. 
And as I describe for people the life of Jesus, I like to put it in these terms. The, the Word of God speaks of the greatest event in history, which was His birth, that ultimately led to the greatest act of love in history, which was His death, that eventually led to the greatest miracle in history, which was His resurrection. Well, this morning we want to look at the great importance and significance of the Incarnation. Uh, as I said, over the course of the past several weeks, we've investigated this great prologue to the Gospel of John. Verses 1 through 18 is such a rich and invigorating section of Scripture. We, we've just begun our study of the Gospel of John, but we've already examined many of the great truths about Jesus, the Lagos, the visible, tangible expression of God, namely that He is eternal. He is God, He is Creator, and He is the light and the giver of eternal life. And after a brief introduction to John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, in verses 6-8, through eight, the Apostle John is now circled back to his primary focus, which was and is to fully describe who the Lagos really is. And so let's look at our passage for this morning. It's verses 14 through 18. You'll see exactly what I mean. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about Him and cried out, saying, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for He existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were re- realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. So here, in these five verses, we find four truths about the Lagos. First, we see that the Lagos took on human flesh and physically dwelt among men. He, he pitched his tent among men. And that wouldn't be a big deal if the Lagos was anything less than God, but John is telling us that the Lagos was God in the flesh. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Second, the Lagos exhibited the glory of God. And we see that here in the second part of verse 14. He says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as the of the only begotten from the Father. And so we see here that the people that he dwelt amongst saw his glory as the one who was sent by the Father. And so first we learn that he took on human flesh, he physically dwelt among men. Second, we learn that the Lagos exhibited the glory of God. And then third, here we find that the Lagos was full of grace and truth. Look again at the third section here of verse 14. It says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father full of grace and truth. And then verse 16, for of his fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. And then verse 17, for the law of Moses, the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through 
Jesus Christ. And so in these verses, we're reminded of the two foundational pillars that God offers in salvation, grace and truth. And both represented in the person of Jesus Christ, the logos, the visible, tangible expression of God. So we know what grace is, right? We just sang about it. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Grace is defined as unmerited favor. Grace is something bestowed upon us by God through Christ, but it's not something we can earn. And I think that's why the Apostle Paul was so specific when he wrote Romans, when he wrote Ephesians, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, not as a result of performance, not as a result of being able to do anything. Because if we were able to somehow contribute to grace, it wouldn't be grace. It'd be a cooperative effort between us and God. But God extends his grace, sovereignly bestows his grace upon mankind. It's unmerited favor. It's what we do not deserve. None of us deserve salvation, right? The wages of sin is death. What we deserve is eternal death. But God is gracious. And so grace and truth, the two foundational pillars that God offers man in salvation. So grace is defined as unmerited favor, and truth is defined as exactness or factualness. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. You know, we live in a perpetual postmodern age where truth is subjective. So truth isn't standard, it's not objective, it's not central, it's not universal, it's personal, right? So whatever's true for you is fine, it's true for you. But that doesn't mean it's true for me, because I can have my own personal truth. And so we see throughout Scripture that that is not what God says in His Word. Truth is universal, it applies to all people. Jesus, the exclusive message of Jesus, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so now everywhere you turn, almost every major corporation in America has in their purpose statement that they are inclusive, which means you can believe whatever you want to believe. You can be whoever you want to be. There is no objective truth today in the minds and hearts of so many people. That's why it is so vital and so important that we proclaim the exclusive message of Jesus Christ to the people that we come in contact with. Grace and truth. And then fourth, the Logos was unmistakably God. Look at verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. And so since God is spirit and no one has seen the Father, the Logos was sent to physically explain who Jesus is, to reveal God to man. And so Jesus pitched His tent. He came to the earth as the perfect God-man. Well, if you know anything at all about church history, you know 
that what had been understood and accepted for centuries about the incarnation began to be questioned by unbelievers who had infiltrated the church. And so at some point in time, there were those who were teaching that Jesus was a created being and therefore not divine at all. Then there were those who were teaching that he had this fused together nature. And so he was really neither fully God nor fully man. And so as was the custom, a council was convened to hammer out the church's understanding and official position as it related to the incarnation. This brought about the Council of Chalcedon. This was a church council that was held from October the 8th to November the 1st in A.D. 451, long, long time ago, in the city of Chalcedon, which was a city of Bithynia in Asia Minor, known today as Istanbul, Turkey. So the council marked a significant turning point in the Christological debates that led to the separation of the church of the Western Empire in the 5th century. It's known as the last of the ecumenical councils. And the Council of Chalcedon issued what is referred to as the Chalcedonian definition, which repudiated the notion of a single nature in Christ and defined that he has two natures in one person, the divine and the human. And and the Council of Chalcedon provides a clear statement on this, a clear statement on the human and divine nature of Christ. And, And here's how that comprehensive statement begins. We then following the Holy Fathers, with all with one consent, teach people to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man. Now, without getting too deep into the weeds, I'd like to briefly explain two great theological occurrences that happened at the Incarnation. And by the way, incarnation means in the flesh, right? From the Latin in, which means uh, in or into, and carnis, which means meat or flesh. And so when we say the incarnation, we're referring to God in the meat or God in the flesh, God taking on human flesh. Jesus was Emmanuel, God with us. And so the great God of the universe came to this earth, not only took the form of a man, He became a man. And as we'll see, while he became a man, he did not relinquish his deity. He became the perfect God-man. And so there were two great theological occurrences that happened at the Incarnation. And the first is what is called the hypostatic union. The hypostatic union. Again, go back to verse 1. We'll see the tie-in here. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. That's the Lagos. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then verse 18, no one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. Now, we find here this term, only begotten. And uh, it's probably better translated unique one or unique like no other. 
Charles Ryrie defines the hypostatic union this way. He says, the union of undiminished deity and perfect humanity forever in one person is called the doctrine of the hypostatic union. That is, the union of two hypostases, and this is the uniqueness of Christ. The doctrine of the hypostatic union answers the question, was Jesus God or was Jesus man? And the answer is, yes, Yes, he is forever from the moment of his birth, undiminished deity, and perfect humanity forever in one person. As we've said, the the word here for word in verses 1 and verse 14 is the Greek word logos. And as the word, as the logos, Jesus was the full expression of God in human flesh. In fact, we know that according to Hebrews 10, verses 12 through 13, that Jesus is now in heaven physically seated at the right hand of the Father in a glorified body, undiminished deity and perfect humanity forever in one person. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2 says that we will be like him as we see him just as he is. You know, it's very interesting as you look at the uh, chronology of the Bible. As Solomon dedicated the temple in 1 Kings 8, 27, he asked, but will God dwell on the earth? And you recall in the Old Testament, God's glory had been in the, the tabernacle and in the temple. But that glory eventually departed from disobedient Israel. And then this marvelous occurrence happened The glory of God came to his people again, this time in the person of Jesus Christ. Well, we've already determined that the overall theme of the book of John is the deity of Christ. But as we continue to study this gospel, it's going to be equally as clear that while Jesus was God, he was also human. Truly God, truly human. We'll eventually get there, but when we consider John chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, we'll see that Jesus was weary. He got tired. He was thirsty. When we get to John chapter 11, verses 33 through 35, we'll find that Jesus was deeply troubled. He was grieved. He wept. When we get to John 19, verses 28 through 34, we'll find that when Jesus was hanging on the cross, that he thirsted and he bled and he died. All of these are examples of his humanity. And so as we consider the incarnation, the first great theological occurrence was the hypostatic union. Undiminished deity and perfect humanity forever in one person. But you might say, I'm a, I'm a bit confused here. How can God take on a human body with all of its limitations and still be God? And so this brings us then to the second great theological occurrence, what theologians call the kenosis. So for this, let's go over to Philippians, Philippians chapter 2, and we'll see a passage here that Paul writes to the church at Philippi that helps us to understand the second great theological occurrence, the kenosis. So Philippians chapter 2, beginning with verse 5. Philippians 2, beginning with verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself 
taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of man. The kenosis, the emptying. Jesus voluntarily chose to set aside the independent use of some of his divine attributes while he was on the earth. And he submitted wholly to the Father's will under the direction of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus was no less than God. He didn't relinquish his deity at all. He voluntarily set aside the independent use of some of his attributes while he was on the earth. So, for example, God is omnipresent, right? One of the great attributes of God. God is omnipresent, which means that God is everywhere present at once. Well, Jesus voluntarily set aside his omnipresence while he was on the earth because he was really only in one place at a time. And so wherever his human body was, that is where his deity was at, at, at that given time. Why? Because John 6.38 gives us the answer. It was Jesus' ultimate goal to come to the earth and to do the will of the Father, not his own will. And so Jesus came to fulfill the sovereign will of the Father. God's plan was for his son to come to the earth as the perfect and only acceptable sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people that he loved. I think understanding both of those great theological occurrences is essential for us to be able to make sense of who Jesus Christ is really is. Because really, isn't that the great question that we began our series with? When, when Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Well, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Who is Jesus? And ultimately, isn't that the million-dollar question when we're talking to people about their sin and salvation? Who do you say is Jesus Christ? We could get in the weeds about all kinds of things. We could get in the weeds about what's going to happen in the end times. We could get in the weeds about explaining all the nuances of various doctrines and things. But ultimately, don't we really want to get to the heart of the question of who do you say that? Who do you say that Jesus Christ is? Because if we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, we will be saved. Well, it's easy to say that. I believe. I believe Jesus. I believe in Jesus. How many people have we had say to us over the years, I believe in Jesus? Well, it's really not denied that Jesus existed, right? Our whole dating system is based upon his life and his birth, his birth and his death, right? Most people, it's a historical fact that Jesus existed. All kinds of, of uh, secular authors and writers wrote about Jesus. It's not debated that Jesus existed. The debate is not about did he exist. The debate about is who he is. Who he is. Who did he claim to be? Who is Jesus Christ? And so as we look at these two theological occurrences, it helps us to understand that he is undiminished deity, perfect humanity in one person. The God-man who set aside some of the independent use of some of his attributes while he was on the earth. So people will say, yeah, I know about Jesus. Well, what does Scripture say? The demons believe and they shudder. 
So it's not enough to know that Jesus was a historical figure. That's not belief. That's not belief. That's an acknowledgement of a historical fact. The demons know that Jesus existed. The demons actually know how this is all going to end in the end, too. Who do you say that Jesus Christ is? I mentioned last week that I was going to go back to uh, Roots Farmer's Market because I felt horrible that I had walked past the Jehovah Witnesses tent the previous week or two, and I could not get it out of my mind. I'm thinking to myself, what kind of Christian are you? I mean, uh, inconvenient to tell people about Jesus? Well, I did. I walked past them, and, and uh, I could not get it out of my mind. So I, I purposed it in my heart that I was going to go back, and I told you about that last week, and I did. I went back on this past Tuesday and spent about 35 to 40 minutes with the two gentlemen that were manning the tent. And ultimately, ultimately, we eventually got to this question, who do you say that Jesus is? Because the Jehovah Witnesses in the New World Translation have changed as many passages of Scripture to take out the deity of Christ from their Bible. Who do you say that Jesus is? Well, they changed John 1.1. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That has been the translation of that verse for 2,000 years. They changed it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. How many gods are there? How many gods are there? I think it's a legitimate question. He is a God. Well, they believe that Jesus was Michael the archangel. Show me in your Bible where it says that Jesus was Michael the archangel. It's nowhere even in their Bible. Who do you say that he is? So we eventually had to get to who do you say that Jesus is? We, 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 it was interesting. They were trying to find common ground with me when we were talking. Well, we both agree on that, but it doesn't matter, I said, because we don't agree on the most fundamental doctrine of Jesus Christ. Who do you say that he is? If you say that he is anything less than God, you cannot be a Christian. You cannot be a Christian. There is an exclusive message that we preach. And I tried as hard as I possibly could to not be argumentative with these guys and just to be conversational with them and engage with them and to ask them probing questions. But it was sad. It was sad because I felt like I knew more about what they're supposed to believe than they knew. Well, I closed my time with them. Uh, You know the old fingernails on the chalkboard, right? I closed my time with them. After I talked to them for 35, 40 minutes, I said, I want to come back (laughs) and talk with you more. So I hope to do that. I hope to go back, and hopefully those same fellows will be there. But um, at best, they would leave that conversation confused. At best. Because they could not defend 
what they believe. And let me just say, you don't have to be a theological genius to engage somebody about Jesus. I mean, look at all the disciples. Fishermen, you know, uh, tent maker, on and on. These, these guys work with their hands, carpenters. These guys were, were men's, men, men, man's men, whatever you want to say. They were manly men. They worked and they, they, they toiled and they, they, they weren't theologically educated. These are the men that God, through Christ, used to propagate the gospel throughout the world. So you don't have to know every answer to every question to engage people about Jesus, but we need to ask people, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that Jesus is? So you could get into all these different conversations. Eventually, we got to get to Jesus, right? Who is Jesus? Well, this is Jesus. The prologue of the Gospel of John tells us all about who Jesus is. That's the whole point, right? That's what he said in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. This is why I'm writing these things, to tell you who Jesus is, because that's the problem today in the world. People don't know who Jesus is. They think he was a good teacher. They think that he was a good guy. They think that perhaps he was even a fraud who came to represent himself a certain way, but he really wasn't that. But there's some historic significance to Jesus all throughout history because, our, like I said, our dating system is even based upon his birth and his death. Who do you say that Jesus Christ is? So, with that personal purpose in mind, the Bible records that the perfect God-man came to this earth and dwelt among men for a number of distinct purposes. I want to give you seven of them. So hopefully you're taking notes today. I want to give you seven reasons why Jesus came to the earth. Okay? At least seven. We could probably come up with another one or two, but these are at least seven. Okay? First, Jesus came to the earth to reveal God to man. We've already talked about it. We read it earlier. John 1.18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. You want to know what God is like? Look to Jesus. That's why he came. That's why he pitched his tent, so that he could reveal God to man. Second, Jesus came to the earth to do the will of the Father. Think of the humility of that that we just read in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 8. John 6, 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Third, Jesus came to the earth to provide the perfect sacrifice for sin. Hebrews 10.4 says that it is impossible for bulls and goats to take away sin. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21 says, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Ephesians 5 and verse 25, Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. The Old Testament sacrificial system led to the coming of Christ, the Messiah, who would die in the place of sinners as the once-for-all sacrifice. So when bulls and goats 
were sacrificed in the Old Testament sacrificial system, they were never intended, no, nor did anyone think, that they were the permanent uh, solution for the atonement of the sins of the people. They were temporary coverings. This is why they had to do it every year. Every year they had to go and they had to have their sins covered or atoned for until Jesus. And Jesus was the once for all sacrifice for sin, the perfect sacrifice for sin. Fourth, Jesus came to the earth to save sinners. Yes, he was the perfect sacrifice that would satisfy God's holy, righteous anger against sin and pay the price that sinners could not pay. But his coming was personal. He came to pay the price that people could not pay themselves. He came to save sinners like us, like people in your neighborhood, like people you work with, like people that go to Roots Farmer's Market, like people that go to Ollie's and Sunset. I like this little poem. If our greatest need had been information, God would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist. If our greatest need had been pleasure, God would have sent us an entertainer. But our greatest need was forgiveness of sin. And so God sent us a Savior. 1 Timothy 1.15 says, It's a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. The Apostle Paul, who was used mightily by God, wrote 13 epistles in the New Testament. Almost half of the New Testament was written by the Apostle Paul. He said, of all the sinners, I'm the greatest. I'm the foremost of all. Mark 2.17 says, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Luke 19 and verse 10, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. When I was in Israel years ago, I got to float in the Dead Sea, which is reassuring, by the way. So if you go to Israel and you go on, I floated. I didn't sink to the bottom. So this is hope that, you know, things will work for you. And uh, it, it's amazing to me. Literally amazing to me. I watched people. <laughs> I'm not a great swimmer, and so I was a little nervous about this, to be honest with you. Um, but I was watching people that were out floating in the Dead Sea, and their hands and their feet were up in the air. I'm thinking, it's true. The, the salt content in the Dead Sea, and the reason why they call it the Dead Sea is because there's no life in the Dead Sea because of all the salt content. But literally, I went out from the beach out into the, into the water, and I, <laughs> I laid back, and I floated like a bobber, just floating on the water. The hardest thing for me was trying to stand up because as soon as you try to put your feet down, they pop right back up. And so I literally had to have help standing back up, but I got to float in the Dead Sea. Sometimes I think that's the picture that we have of what Jesus does in salvation. Somehow man's floating aimlessly in the sea. Jesus throws a man a life preserver. 
and rescues him from danger. But that's not the biblical picture, is it? In reality, as we considered last week, the Bible doesn't depict sinful man as sick in need of a doctor who can dispense some medication, but man is spiritually dead. Spiritually dead. So using that illustration, man's not floating in the sea of life, flailing his arms looking for someone to save him. The picture is much more graphic than that because all men are spiritually dead. They're lifelessly floating on top of the water. Dead people floating on top of the water. A bunch of dead bodies floating on the water. And Jesus came to give dead people life totally saved from the penalty of our sin. God has made us alive. That's regeneration. It's a work of the Spirit of God in us where our our eyes are open to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and we repent of our sin and we believe in Christ. That is the picture we have in Scripture. Jesus coming to give dead people life. Fifth, Jesus came to the earth to destroy the works of the devil. The devil was defeated as a result of Christ's death and resurrection, and we escape the tyranny of the devil only through Christ. Hebrews 2.14, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. John 12, 27 says, Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. So Jesus rhetorically asked, should I pull out of this? And then he answers the question, of course not. This is why I came to the earth. John 12 and verse 46, I have come as light into the world so that everyone that believes in me will not remain in darkness. We live in a world that is dark. I mean, and I say this, and I've said it often, and I I don't know how better to say it. If, If the world is dark, somehow it's getting darker. Somehow it's getting darker. The only hope, the only hope from the domain of darkness, which Satan is the prince of the power of the air, his his domain is the domain of darkness, the only hope is the light, right? Jesus came as the light of the world. When we trust in Christ as Savior, then we are now lights in this dark world. And honestly, it doesn't take much for us to shine. It really doesn't take much. The world is so dark. Remember several weeks back, we talked about this little light of mine. I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine. Let it shine. Jesus came as the light to destroy the, the works of the devil And he defeated the devil at his death and resurrection. The devil is whipped. The devil knows his demise. The devil knows exactly what's going to happen to him. He's going to be bound for a thousand years during the millennial kingdom. At the end of the millennial kingdom, he is going to be unchained 
and then he will meet his demise. He will be thrown into the lake of fire. Jesus, even though he was rejected by most, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Sixth, Jesus came to the earth to be a merciful and faithful high priest. And as you know, one day a year, on the Day of Atonement, the appointed high priest of Israel would enter into the Holy Holies to make atonement for the sins of the people. We learned this in Leviticus chapter 16. Jesus' death on the cross served as a once-for-all atonement for all who would believe. No longer would there be a need to be a temporary covering of sin performed by the hands of a sinful high priest because the sinless Son of God provided a permanent atonement for sin. For those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we have direct access to God through Jesus Christ. We pray to the Father in the name of the Son because that's our access point, right? We can have a relationship with God because of what Christ has done for us. The imputed righteousness of Christ Our sin placed on His account. His righteousness placed on our account. We can only stand in the presence of holy God displaying the righteousness of Jesus, not our own righteousness. Our own righteousness is considered as filthy rags before God. How dare you even think, people, how dare you even think that you can somehow earn your way of salvation. And this is what I told the Jehovah Witnesses. I said, you guys are here today because you are thinking that you're somehow earning your way to favor with God. It's impossible. It's impossible. And then I quoted them several verses from Scripture. I said, let's look at your Bible. Oh, we don't have a copy. We don't have a copy of it with us today. Jesus came to the earth to be a merciful and faithful high priest. Jesus provides a permanent atonement for sin. The seventh and final reason, as we close it out this morning, was to show the heart of a servant. Jesus came to the earth to show the heart of a servant. Think about this. Jesus came from the glories of heaven to this sin-tainted earth, pitched his tent, lived among sinners. Why? Well, he had a mission. We know his mission. Mark 10.45, The Son of Man did not come to the earth to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. I think part of our service, I think part of our service as those who desire to be ambassadors for Christ. I think part of our service is telling other people about Jesus. Not just a one-off at a, at a farmer's market. I try to do this all the time with people. Tell them about Jesus. Tell them about how are they going to hear without a preacher. How are they going to hear without someone who proclaims the truth? This is why we support missionaries to go to foreign lands where, especially like the Browns who are in Indonesia, they're they're talking to people who've never even heard about Jesus. I don't think there's anybody in America that hasn't heard about Jesus. 
The question is not whether you know about Jesus. The question is, do you know Jesus? Who do you say that he is? We need to get to the heart of the matter when we talk to people. We can be nice about it. We can be kind about it. We can be loving about it. We can be engaging with it. But we must get to the heart of the issue. If we really care about people, we really love people, we are going to get out of our shell and tell them about Jesus. And you know what? The more you do that, the more comfortable you're going to be with doing that. The more you do it, it's tough sometimes because we're concerned that someone's going to ask us a question that we don't know the answer to, and we're going to feel stupid or dumb, right? That's why we don't engage because, yeah, there are all these different things out there, all these different questions. Okay, that's fine. The power of the God, the power of God of the salvation lies in the gospel message. Just let that do its work. Give them the unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ and get out of the way and let Jesus work. Let the Holy Spirit of God penetrate the hearts of man. And there's power in the gospel. You don't need to know every little thing theologically for you to be able to engage somebody about Jesus. And you know what? I've studied the Bible my whole life, and I don't know everything either. Not even close. So if somebody asks me a question, I take that seriously. If I don't know the answer to it, I'll say to them, look, I don't know exactly the answer to your question. I'll get that for you. But that's not at the heart of the issue. The heart of the issue is who do you say that Jesus is? The prologue to the Gospel of John, verses 1 through 18, is all about that. It's all about who Jesus really is, which sets the stage then for our future study, beginning in verse 19, all the way through the end of this gospel. I'm looking forward to marching through it. Someone said the other day, Pastor Dave, you think it's going to take you a year to get through the gospel of John? I said, it might take more than a year, maybe two years. I have no idea. I was telling Pastor Flip, I used to go through and I used to outline the book of the Bible that I was going to be preaching on, and I stopped doing that years and years ago because it changes. It changes. I, it's more of a feel for me, so as we move through these things, plus, you know, you set the date, okay, we're going to look at this on this date, well, what if we have a guest speaker, or what if I'm sick, or what if somebody else is preaching, or whatever it may be, and so I like doing it this way because we just take our time. We take our time and we move our way through a gospel like this, the gospel of John. I hope that you're encouraged because we have the truth, folks. We have the truth. We don't have to um, have doubts. We don't have to think about whether or not God has given us what we need. He's given us everything we need in his word to tell us about Jesus the question isn't, have we been given it? The question is, are we going to disseminate it, right? Are we going to tell other people about the gospel of Christ? And by the way, uh, John McCormick was with me when we were out at the uh, farmer's market. And uh, so this may challenge a few of you, but I think next spring we'd like to maybe have a tent out there ourselves. And maybe it's once a month, maybe it's every Tuesday, I don't know. But I'd like to be able to have some sort of a presence out there because there are thousands and thousands and thousands of people that walk through those, um, 
those streets that do not know Jesus Christ as their Savior. We can't be all things to all people in every place, but we can do more. And I want to do more. And I want to encourage you and challenge you to do more. Uh, We have a dark and dying world that we live in, and we have the light, the light of Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for this morning, for your word. Thank you that we can dig into it, we can consider it. Thank you for this passage of Scripture that we can look at in its fullness. Thank you that we can understand uh, the way that you have revealed yourself to us. So we thank you for that today. We thank you that uh, we can have full confidence that, number one, your word is true, but secondly, also, that uh, because it is true, that we can have a right relationship with you through the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the perfect God-man that came to do what we could not do for ourselves. And in gratitude for that, Lord. And if we really believe that Jesus has saved us from our sin, we'll want to tell others about that. And so give us the boldness, give us the heart of proclamation. May we be your ambassadors in this life. May we continue to be strengthened with that, overcome our fears and sharing the gospel and just uh, letting folks know who Jesus Christ really and truly is. But not just who he is, but what he has done on the cross of Calvary. We thank you and we praise you. And it's the name of this Savior, our Savior and Lord, that we pray. Our access to you is through Jesus. And so we pray in his name this morning. Amen.